What if we're not ready? What if the commission is clear and the path is laid out, but we falter? If we struggle to boldly obey, if we want another sign, if we lack the courage to follow where God leads? After all, aren't we all just dust? This is a story about what it's like to pursue a calling that scares you. It's a story about oppression and deliverance and bravery and cowardice, about partnership and excuses and the seeking of signs, earnestly and otherwise. But most of all, this is a story about what's required, truly required, for the largest battles of our lives and where that is to be found. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. The southern and eastern forces are assembling. Midianite, Amalekite, and Bedouin tributaries meeting one another as they tumble down a mountain, combining into a single surging rapid, a riot of violent momentum. For years, they have oppressed the Yahweh-forsaking people of northern Israel, fording the Jordan at harvest time and treating the Hebrews' crops and livestock like a smorgasbord, killing any Jews who get in their way leaving only once they've had their fill. Midian has milked this cow for seven years, and now it seems they aim to butcher it. En masse, their soldiers cross over the river and make camp in the Valley of Jezreel, staging their invasion, plotting their takeover, licking their chops, daring the fractured Israelites and their sleeping god to oppose the onslaught. Every Hebrew watches with macabre, panicked interest, but there is one whose heart hammers more forcefully than any other, Jerubbaal, Gideon, son of Joash, of Ophrah, the one destiny, or better, divinity, has chosen for this moment. A mighty warrior who's never fought a battle, or quite possibly even wielded a sword. An interesting choice by Yahweh, perhaps, but then again, an artist doesn't interview his brush regarding its experience. Such qualifications, or lack thereof, are immaterial. So Yahweh lifts his paintbrush and turns his attention to the verdant canvas stretched taut between Mount Gilboa and Mount Carmel. Enough oppression. What is Gideon doing when it happens? Is he eating dinner with his family, distractedly finishing a bit of unleavened bread as he remembers his offering at the oak tree? Is he in the stables, milking one of the few goats left in Orpha, squeezing until every last drop is drained? Or is he the news of the invader's arrival ringing in his ears, hurriedly packing up blankets and salted meat, 
preparing to head once again for the mountain caves. Does he wonder when Yahweh will call him into action? Does he hope that it's soon? Or would he rather Yahweh forgot his promise and the commission? Better the evil you know than the way out that terrifies you. Wherever Gideon is, Yahweh finds him and clothes Gideon with his spirit. What does that mean exactly? Is Gideon overcome by a new outlook? Does he suddenly feel stronger? Do others, in a way far beyond what's ever been true, listen when he speaks? Something like all of this, it seems. Divine courage, vision, authority, optimism coursing through body and soul. This is not the Gideon who threshed wheat at the wine press. He blows the trumpet. The call of the shofar ripples out from Orpha in concentric circles, summoning Gideon's countrymen to follow him into battle against the foreign coalition. First, his own clan, the Abiezrites. Then, messengers rush the summons to the rest of Manasseh, followed by the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. It is a bold invitation. Join your subjugated compatriots in an impossible stand against the bullies who successfully tyrannized you for ages. An end to the Midianites' hegemony is appealing, certainly, but this campaign must strike the Israelites as ambitious at best, ludicrous at worst. And yet, they answer, thousands of them rising to Gideon's enchanted call, journeying from the shores of the Mediterranean, the hills of the Westlands, the northern mountain slopes, fathers and sons set on freedom, hoping for help in the coming battle, betting their lives on the grace of a forgotten God. The spirit of Yahweh is on the move. But Gideon cannot shake his fear. God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. Gideon, kneeling in prayer, his pulse at full gallop, searches for what he means to say, what he wants, needs. Assurance, that's what he needs. Evidence, something tangible, proof this God will do what he's promised to do. Proof that he can do it. Look. Gideon continues his prayer with a gutsy request. I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If in the morning there is dew only on the fleece and the ground around it is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. Gideon stands. No response. Not words, at least. But perhaps... When the sun rises, Gideon journeys to his family's threshing floor. His sandaled feet swish through the grass, the morning light sparkling on his dew-smeared toes. 
A threshing floor would usually be littered with wheat straw and the scattered remnants of the most recent threshings, but this one is abnormally tidy, the wind and rain having long since washed away any evidence of the last time Gideon was brave enough to make use of this place, the days before he began hiding at the wine press. The emptiness of this threshing floor is a monument to the Israelites' fearful predicament. It's the perfect place for just such a miracle. And a miracle is exactly what Gideon finds, for approaching the floor is like approaching bleached bones, not a drop of dew to be found. The fleece, on the other hand, gleams lustrous in the golden sun, every filament wrapped in the watery presence of Yahweh. But what if it's an optical illusion, his eyes playing tricks? Gideon stoops over the fleece, taking it in his hands, rubbing his fingers over the sodden wool. Amazed, he tests its heft, moving it ever so slightly up and down, and then, marveling, twists it in his hands, sending water spilling onto the stone floor as if it were poured from a full pitcher. There was enough dew in that fleece to fill a bowl. Gideon glances again at the waterless stones of the threshing floor, tiny streams now threading in all directions from beneath his fingers. Gideon stands and speaks. Another prayer. Do not be angry with me, God. Why doesn't he call Yahweh by name? Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, he says, his hands dripping with dew. This time, make the fleece dry and let the ground around be covered with dew. The task ahead of Gideon is daunting, to be sure, and who could blame him for needing to cobble together and re-cobble courage enough to obey? But it must be asked, is Gideon looking for further assurance from Yahweh, or is he testing deity, asking what he thinks might be barely too much, hoping, at least subconsciously, that God will tire of this sign-seeking and thereby provide him with a reasonable excuse to desert. It would have been unwise to proceed without certainty, and there was no second sign. I'm a father and a husband. Who would provide for my family if the worst happened? You understand. But if Gideon is angling for a loophole, he does not get one. The next morning, the threshing floor is covered in dew, and the fleece, not the smallest drop of water. Okay. Dawn at the spring of Chaurod, literally the trembling spring, water bubbling up from within the earth, the pool trembling, disturbed. An apt picture of many of the Israelites' hearts as the sun rises and illuminates not just their camp at Mount Gilboa, but the Midianites' and Amalekites' camp just to the north near the hill of Morah. 
a few generations from now, a united Israel's first king on the eve of a battle in this valley will visit that hill. Under the cover of darkness, he'll seek the counsel of a witch in a town called Endor. Perhaps as he does, the fearful Saul will think back to this very battle, wishing Yahweh were present with him the way he was with Gideon. But divine presence does not guarantee courage. It must be recognized, embraced, trusted. And Gideon is still working on that. He cannot count the coalition's troops, not from this distance, but if he were to glimpse their immensity and guess that they outnumbered the Israelites four to one, he would not be wrong. The four Hebrew tribes have amassed a force of 32,000, nothing to sneeze at, but the enemy soldiers number no less than 135,000. This is not good, Yahweh says to Gideon. Before Gideon can agree, Yahweh continues, You have too many men. Too many? I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, Yahweh sighs, or Israel would boast against me. They would say, My own strength has saved me. Now, announce to the army, and Yahweh tells Gideon what to say. Surely, Gideon's heart rises to his throat as he listens to the script. Gideon stands before his troops, takes a breath, and shouts, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilboa. Faces turn toward one another, startled, no doubt, by this permission. If Gideon were more familiar with the law Yahweh gave to Moses all those years ago, he'd know that it actually stipulated that every commander must make this very same offer on the cusp of every battle. A curious rule for a nation about to conquer a land Unless, of course, the number of fighters was immaterial to the success of any given campaign. But how could that be true? Gideon looks out at the 32,000 men, masking his nerves, hoping the prospect of a shameful exit will deter any potential absconders from taking him up on the offer. It does not. As the men look around, one of them has the courage to be a coward gathers his things and walks away. Then another, two more, 10, 27, 100. Like a dropped pot, the Israelite army shatters, splintered pieces skittering in every direction. When it's done, 22,000 soldiers are gone. Less than one in three men remains. Gideon surely feels drops of sweat gather under his arms. But then Yahweh's voice, there are still too many. If Gideon were a fainting man, take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. 
If I say, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So Gideon brings the troops to the water and tells them to drink. At Yahweh's command, Gideon watches his men enjoy the cool water. And at Yahweh's command, Gideon and his officers separate everyone into two groups, those who knelt by the water to drink and those who brought the water to their mouths with cupped hands. Ah, only 300 out of 10,000, Gideon thinks to himself, perhaps, surveying the smaller of the two groups. Not that they've got any to spare at this point, but at least they'll only lose 300. Good, says Yahweh, finally. I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. Everyone else is to go home. As he sends 9,700 of his 10,000 remaining men to their tents, Gideon is thinking perhaps that two fleeces wasn't enough. Nightfall. In the darkness, twinkling dots litter the Jezreel Valley like stars, the fires of the Midianite and Amalekite camp forming constellations below, Gideon's world turning upside down as he imagines all the ways he could be killed tomorrow. Yahweh knows what he's thinking, this newly faithful, sometimes fearful child of his, and he knows Gideon's love language. I am going to give it into your hands, Yahweh. Do tears form in the corners of Gideon's eyes? But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack them. Assurance. Yes, please. Gideon gets Pura and the two of them dressed, surely in the darkest cloaks they can find, they make their way down the slopes of Mount Gilboa, through the Aleppo pines, and past scattered sleeping goats. Every step brings them closer and improves their view of the coalition's forces. Thick as locusts. Just their camels. Counting them would be like trying to count the grains of sand on the seashore. Gideon glances back, perhaps, toward Gilboa and his twenty-five dozen men. As they finally near the enemy camp, Gideon and Pura lower themselves to a crouch and creep noiselessly toward the tents. What are they supposed to be listening for? They get close, dangerously close, to the stretched canvas of one of the outermost tents and to hear voices speaking excitedly inside. I had a dream, a man is saying with hushed urgency. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into our camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent flipped over and collapsed. Another voice. This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. They know my name. God has given the Midianites and our whole camp into his hands. Outside the tent, Gideon, goosebumps fluttering across his skin, bows, 
and worships. Okay. Get up! Gideon's voice carries clear across the compact camp of Hebrews. Yahweh has given the Midianite camp into your hands! He's calling Yahweh by name now. Yahweh's instructions fresh in his ears, Gideon divides the 300 men into three companies and distributes the shofars left behind by the now absent battalion commanders. There are plenty of clay jars for provisions left as well, vestiges of a needier force. Whatever's in the vessels is jettisoned, and 300 times over, Gideon replaces a jar's former contents with a lit torch. One fire-concealing urn is then given to every man to hold in the hand that's not holding his trumpet. Watch me! Gideon shouts, his face illuminated by the glow escaping from the mouth of his jar. Follow my lead! When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for Yahweh and for Gideon. About midnight, the Israelite warriors reach the edge of the sleeping camp. As the others peer through the darkness at their leader, hearts thumping inside their ribs, they see Gideon grasp the handle of the torch inside his jar with his left hand and turn the torch right side up the jar suspended atop it like a mushroom cap, still hiding the fire. With his right hand, he lifts his ram's horn to his lips, takes a deep breath, and blows. The trumpet explodes with sound, and the son of Joash raises his left arm aloft and then flings it downward. The burning torch remains in his hand as the jar rockets to the ground and shatters with an emphatic crash. He raises the torch again, and the three companies of 100 echo the pattern. At once, a thunderous chorus of trumpets peals across the Midianite camp, accompanied by the chaotic treble of smashing clay, and then men screaming, a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. Midianite and Amalekite and Bedouin fighters stumble from their tents, awakened by the cacophony. Sleep-dazed, they scan the borders of the camp in horror to see and hear what must be a hundred torches and trumpets. One hundred companies of Israelite soldiers? They panic, perhaps spurred on by the news of one soldier's disturbing dream, crying out and turning on one another in the confusion as they flee the camp in a divinely induced hysteria. Meanwhile, the men of Israel simply stand fast and watch. Gideon trembles, dumbstruck, surely. Perhaps 300 Israelites was more than enough. But not all of the enemy troops die that night. Panting and bleeding and terrified, the coalition fighters who somehow escaped the slaughter scramble east toward the Jordan and then south toward Midian and Amalek. 
aiming to fight another day, they slink on mile after mile, hour after hour, until they reach Beth Shita and Abel Meholah, halfway home. But Gideon's trumpet blows again, and men from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh are gathered to hunt down the invaders and finish the job. Ephraim, too. Once the scattered enemies reach the tribe of Ephraim's territory, Gideon sends messengers to the hill country with this missive. Come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the fords of the Jordan at Beth Barah. We must not let them back across the river. And the Ephraimites come through. With the river crossings secure, the invaders are essentially trapped. The men of Ephraim canvass the Jordan River Valley and track down bands of Midianites still on the run from Gideon and Yahweh. Notably, the Ephraimite hunters discover two Midianite princes, Oreb and Zeeb, hiding in places that may bring a wry smile to Gideon when he receives word. Oreb they find hunkered down in a cave where he's put to death. And Zeeb? When the Israelites catch Zeeb, the prince of Midian is cowering in a winepress. In moments, the winepress runs red. The severed heads of Zeeb and Oreb are brought to Gideon. And at long last, there is the promise of peace for Israel. The shalom they've all been craving for so long. When he dies, years from now, having led Israel in the wake of this deliverance, Gideon will have made mistakes, of course, heartbreaking ones. But here, now, a victory has been won, and Gideon a willing instrument in the hand of his God. The children of Israel were hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And what's been gained is not just security, mothers and fathers and daughters and sons safe during the next harvest and warm in their own beds where bedtime songs are meant to be sung. No, more than that, what's been gained is an encounter with Yahweh, the God who commissions unlikely heroes, the God who orchestrates improbable battle plans, the God who places the treasure of his light in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from him and not from us. Thank you.
Hey, Justin here. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conclusion of The Commissioner and the Axeman. What a story. Now, if you're familiar with Gideon's story as it's told in the Bible, you know that there's one sort of final chapter I did not include here. And man, this part of the tale is very fascinating. I'm excited to say that patrons of the show can expect a bonus episode coming soon that will tell that last part of the story. And I cannot wait to share it with you. If you're not a patron now, jump in so that you get it when it drops. There's a link to my page on Patreon in the show notes, or you can just Google Patreon Holy Ghost Stories. Okay, quick PSA. If you don't already, you should subscribe to the latest. It's a twice monthly email from yours truly in which I share what I'm working on and thinking about lately, uh, behind the scenes stuff about each one of these episodes, uh, what I love about wherever my family is living at the moment. We're in Cape Town these days and a smattering of cool stuff I find around the internet. It's free and you can subscribe at holyghoststories.org or by following the link in the show notes. Lastly, a heartfelt shout out to the Tours on Patreon. You guys are like the tribe of Ephraim in this story, getting the job done. Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric and Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan and Jamie. Thank you. I could not do this without you. Till next time. <laughs>